HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Patina Events at Brooklyn Botanic Garden, an idyllic location for weddings, corporate events, and parties of any style. Visit us at patinaevents.com. This week on Meet and 3, we're exploring interactions from drug studies in a laboratory. If this effect is as big as he's saying, somebody should have discovered this long before he did. To global wisdom on avoiding hangovers. Beber cerveza antes de tomar vino no previene los Be- síntomas. Beer before wine, you're going to be fine. Wine before beer, you're going to be queer. To the novel recipes developed by an Indian American family deep in the heart of Texas. And then my mom's sort of coming to America and learning that uh, white parents love to melt cheese on things to get their kids to eat it. She was like, this is genius. (laughs) Be sure to subscribe to Meat in 3. That's M-E-A-T plus sign T-H-R-E-E. Available wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, and welcome to the Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Today's episode, they say that breakfast is the most important meal of the day. And in a time of overnight oats and energy bars, breaking fast from the night before is often overlooked. That's until Emily Elise Miller founded Breakfast Club, which brings light an intimate, humanizing time of day where you can choose to rise early, sleep in, eat well, or grab and go. Breakfast is the only meal that will actually affect the rest of your day. So she's written the latest Fiden Bible, Breakfast the Cookbook, with nearly 400 recipes, and around the world in 80 countries, from Huevos Rancheros in Mexico to Tamago Kake Gohan in Japan, Australian avocado toast, and Czech coloaches. There's also Jamaican Aki and saltfish, Cuban cafecitos, and, you know, after this, you'll never look at your morning meal the same again. Thank you for being on, Emily. Thanks for having me. Now, this is, first of all, the most notes I've ever written for an episode, because this this Bible, and it truly is, uh, that you've written for Fiden, all about breakfast, is how many pages? Pages, I think around 700, but it's almost 400 recipes, yeah. and, and essays from incredible chefs and Uh, culinary personalities around the world as well. I feel like it is a book that you will keep on your table because of its actual weight, though I did want to transport it. And thankfully, it's so transportive around the world that 
you can be at home but feel like you're everywhere. That was a great transition. <laughs> <laughs> you're welcome. Um, let, let's talk about your breakfast. And first of all, are you a morning person? I am forcibly a morning person. <laughs> I, I really, I like the morning hours. So even though sometimes it would be really nice to sleep in a little bit, when I do something maybe that I don't necessarily want to do and accomplish even a few small things in the morning, it really sets my day up for success. I feel a lot better versus knowing that the world has happened around me already and I haven't gotten a start yet. But in your youth, was it a little bit of a drag to get you out of bed to feed you before going to school? Uh, breakfast was the number one motivator for getting me out of bed. That was it. Yeah. Nothing else. And you yeah. grew up in two distinctly different parts of the country, Arizona and Hawaii. Yes. Um, I know a little bit about a Hawaiian breakfast, and we'll get into that soon. But Arizona, does it have any specific cuisine to start your day? Um, it, I, You know, growing up, I didn't really think it did. But after moving to New York and living here for almost 10 years, I realized that Southwestern culture is so distinctive and I have never been more proud of it, I think, since moving away. So similarly in New Mexico, you can get, and Northern Mexico actually as well, you can get things like machaca and eggs, which is like a cured shredded beef with eggs and obviously put it in a giant burrito and cover it with sauce and all this kind of incredible Incredibly hearty breakfast foods, very similar to Mexico. I was about to say it sounds very filling, but also very fortifying. Because do you eat breakfast as a way to, you know, energize you for the day to come, the whole day? Or is it just to sate yourself right at that moment? I typically eat something that will get me through most of the afternoon. So I'll have breakfast around 10 or 10.30 and then probably something around 2 or 3. And then I also just eat dinner really early too, so... There's two meals that are very close to each other. It's conflated. That's why breakfast is important yeah. to me. Then what are your thoughts about brunch? Does that even exist in the world of breakfast? Oh, brunch. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's hard to hate on brunch. I think I only do because it became so trendy, but who doesn't love waking, like sleeping in a little bit on the weekend, going to meet your friends, drinking, eating eggs, pancakes? Like, it's great. But now I'm, there's a stigma attached to the name. So it, I feel it's like it's just overpriced to, breakfast food. It is overpriced breakfast. And I kind of stopped enjoying brunch I think because when you're really into food you know that none of the chefs are actually there on the weekends cooking brunch so it's always kind of passed on and I feel like never really as good as as other menus I mean it's been relegated to the weekend and a prime example of New York is the Jewish appetizing shops and you'd get everything you needed on a Friday your bagels your smoked fish your spreads and then have that as your spread on a Saturday. But can you, in a thick New York accent, tell me what your grandfather Shelley used to say? Oh my God, not in a New York accent. But he would say, you want eggs? Like, peek around the corner and ask my sister and I. And he used to do that to my dad growing up. So it just became this like phrase in our family. And that was what got us out of bed. Because when he asked us that, he knew we obviously wanted eggs and they were pretty much already made. So, But he owned an appetizing shop in the Bronx. He did, yeah. I was never there for that. I never lived in New York. But um, my family is all from New York originally. And he owned an appetizing store called Miller's Appetizing. And I think it's... And I actually really only learned this a few years ago. So I just ended up in this specific niche career about breakfast and then found out that it's been part of my heritage the whole time. You must hate it when people say, let's meet up for breakfast, because that is not only your work, and they try to roll it into the pleasurable part of life, but 
you are a breakfast savant. You know everything not only about breakfast around the world, but I'm sure the best breakfast places around the world, too. I do. People ask me a lot where to eat for breakfast. I actually, I eat breakfast at home so often that um, I really have my go-to breakfast restaurants in New York. And whenever I'm traveling, my favorite thing to do is just find a coffee shop and or like a very casual breakfast spot. And I'll go there pretty much every day that I'm traveling. It just creates some sense of normalcy. So that first morning coffee or meal um, is really important to me. I love your Instagram because you have this morning routine. And by that, you actually have no true morning routine, but you document that. How, how important is it to have that time of day to yourself? It's, it's really just my time to be myself and to reflect on everything going on. I feel like it's really energizing. And I started doing the morning routines because I didn't want to be fake on Instagram. I didn't want to post how glamorous everything appears to be all the time because most of the time it's pretty mundane and like there's some cool things and I'll share those too but also letting people know that I like wandered around my apartment for 20 minutes because I was like bored and trying to figure out if I should clean or start working and or cook breakfast it's just very normal stuff but one of the most creative and and kind of impactful things I've ever done in a morning was attend uh, an event series that you began and that's called Breakfast Club. And when I met you, it, it was this kind of amazing amalgamation and conglomeration of, of a restaurant, a food brand, and a location, all devoted to things that have to deal with breakfast. Um, there was a breakfast burrito made by the Filipino fast food joint called Flip Siggy. Uh, Beyond Meats or Impossible Foods. Impossible Foods. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> gave gave uh, the, the protein mm-hmm. for that filling and then... The Egg House was your host, which was this Lower East Side um, place that that it was an ode to everything egg. It, it was a museum slash fun house. Now, what was that for? Who was there? And what is the purpose or what was the purpose of Breakfast Club? Yeah, Breakfast Club started because I was doing a lot of food writing. I was researching for the book. I was doing a lot of freelance projects and traveling a lot and really just seeking connection in these cities. I would travel alone a lot. So reached out to a ton of creative people in these cities that I was going to and thought the best way to meet everyone was to get together over breakfast and kind of catch up with all of your friends and new friends at one time. So the best way to motivate people to get up in the morning would be through a really cool and delicious breakfast. So reached out to some chef friends in different cities and somehow convinced them to open their space in the morning hours where typically they would only be serving a tasting menu or dinner service and just have them also take a break from from what they were doing and take out, just bring out any kind of weird creative stuff that they've been wanting to cook and create or anything nostalgic and like Fabian and Jeremiah um, at Contra, they did the second Breakfast Club ever, and they had a combination of congee, chiaquiles, and like a really amazing ham and cheese and bread plate. Um, very random mix of foods, but so delicious, and it's all just meant to induce creative conversation. There's been a lot of creative conversation around the breakfast burrito, not just from the event that I attended of yours, but you've told me in the past one of your favorite things you ever had was a breakfast burrito from uh, Gabriella Kamar at Kala in San Francisco. Yeah, yeah. Gabby created an insane breakfast burrito and in the most respectful way ever, it reminded me of Taco Bell, but 
a Taco Bell burrito that I would actually want to eat. Um, I don't even think there was eggs in there. It was just, it was so good and really filling and delicious in the morning. Homemade tortillas. I mean, what more can you ask for? Well, you can ask for a recipe and luckily you it's, have one in the book. Yeah. <laughs> and I think it's on page 158. Yeah. There's an on-the-go California Meets American Southwest version. So what is the difference between those two versions and how did you bring them together? People get very heated about what's in their breakfast burrito. Um, let's see. I don't, there's some regional differences. I mean, if you get a breakfast burrito in New York, at a bodega, like you literally have to tell them every single item you want in it because it's just not a standard thing that people order at a bodega here. I mean, in California, it's completely different. You get the works, you get everything. I feel like in this, it's similar to Arizona. I think in the Southwest, you'll get maybe a little bit less Baja style Mexican food and more like Northern Mexican type ingredients. I think the American version is like ketchup with ketchup or breakfast potatoes, um, like a home style breakfast potato with like the peppers and onions. And I think avocado is always a questionable addition, but it's not questionable for me. It needs to be in there. Yeah. I also put beans and like refried beans in there. I mean, it's kind of just whatever you have in your kitchen. And growing up in the Southwest, we always had avocado, beans, tomatoes, everything to make. There's a little a bit more burrito. of a dictum, though, for foods in and around that area. And let, let's transport, you know, uh, past the border into Mexico City, um, because I think some of those foods, at least burritos, are derivative of foods of, of that country. Huevos Rancheros and Chilaquiles are two of my favorite things to order at, I won't say brunch, breakfast, <laughs> um, because texturally they're delicious you know crispy tortillas and and really great meats and i mean it, it is the best things of dinner turn into a well not lighter fare but turn into a much more appetizing time of day um what is so great about mexico for breakfast well first of all you would never find breakfast burritos or breakfast tacos in mexico city that's very much an americanized version of what people think Mexican breakfast is, I guess. Um, my favorite breakfast in Mexico City is is on the street. Like when you're there for a few days, you'll find your favorite tamale stand serving different types of tamales, and then they always give you this kind of hero role to go with it, and you can create a torta de tamale, like a tamale sandwich to take to work with you, even though tamales are already really portable. So I'm not really sure where that came from, but I am not arguing with it at all. Um, my favorite thing to get on the street, and you can also get this in restaurants, is chiquiles. And you get a cup um, that they fill with tortilla chips, usually freshly fried tortilla chips, and like smoosh it down a little bit, add shredded chicken, fresh diced onion, crema, and you choose between salsa verde and salsa roja. And again, you get like a roll to go with it so that when the chiaquiles get a little bit soggy and too soupy to eat, you put it in the roll and you make a torta de chiaquiles. It sounds great. And you mentioned that's already in a cup. There, there is this idea of transportability. Um, when, when did breakfast become something so uh, fast food's not the right term, but something that we think is compact on the go, um, it's less about eating together and communal and it's about, you know, being able to carry that with you wherever you go. Well, uh, the U S is 
really one of the few places who actually like sits down and has a mega meal for breakfast, mostly around the world. And this is what made a lot of the recipes in the book so special and kind of difficult to translate at the same time is most breakfast around the world is street food and people will get something to eat on their way to work or like in Singapore, stop at a hawker center and just get something either to go or, or really quick. Um, in the U.S., breakfast culture is very different. In Australia, breakfast culture is very different. Like there, it's completely opposite. And that's kind of where all day cafes started uh, because people will go out and have a long breakfast at a restaurant during the week there. It's like very much important part of the culture. Do you find yourself self taking more time for breakfast now, being contemplated over it? Or, uh, or first of all, are you exhausted by breakfast after 700 pages, 400 recipes? You would think that, but not at all. I mean, the book, it's called Breakfast, but all of those dishes can be enjoyed any time of day. It's, there's a bunch of savory, there's a bunch of sweet, there's a lot of soup for breakfast, there's a lot of stuff that translates, even in those countries, to things that people eat for lunch and or dinner, but traditionally enjoyed during the morning. Well, we're going to take a quick break and then begin by talking about Everything Eggs, one of the biggest and best <laughs> chapters of this book, Breakfast, the Cookbook. You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We'll be right back. Tina Restaurant Group offers unparalleled service in New York's most iconic locations, including Lincoln Center, Rockefeller Center, and Macy's Herald Square. Patina is also the exclusive caterer at Brooklyn Botanic Garden. From meetings and presentations in the glass-walled atrium, to galas in the renovated Palm House, and intimate wedding showers at Yellow Magnolia Cafe, your event will be perfectly imagined and customized at Brooklyn Botanic Garden. You can also enjoy a la carte brunch and lunch at the picturesque Yellow Magnolia Cafe overlooking Lilypool Terrace. Executive chef Morgan Jarrett's unique menu offers warm, distinctive cuisine with a focus on local vegetables, grains, and sustainably sourced meats and fish. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. I'm Patrick Martins. I'm Brandon Hoy. And I'm Emily Pearson. Together, we host The Main Course OG, where we cover food news and culture. Browse episodes of The Main Course OG wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. And welcome back to the food scene on heritageradionetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkell, here today with Emily Elise Miller and Breakfast, the cookbook. I want one of those effects that do the cookbook, cookbook, <laughs> the Lou Gehrig. Um, because this is, this is a really epic thing that you did. Um, and the most epic or I think ubiquitous breakfast food around the world might be eggs. Um, there is such a big chapter. I mean, it is the lead to the recipes in the book. And it starts with a primer on just how to cook eggs in four different ways. Uh, the global fried, poached, boiled, and scrambled. How do you like your eggs? I, I change it up. I like the olive oil fried egg. I like getting little lacy sides and keeping the yolk a little runny. See, is an egg a star of a plate or is it uh, some kind of supporting character? 
I think it's the star. I think it can it can support too. It completely depends on what you're making. Because let's talk about Israeli breakfast plate versus an English full breakfast. <laughs> Where does the egg stand in both of those? Oh plates? man, um, maybe supporting on both. Actually, I feel like an English breakfast is is very meat heavy. It's very starch heavy, and then you have roasted mushrooms and tomatoes and there's usually some eggs in there as well just i think to create a really delicious sauce for everything that is on the plate and then there's also the beans which i can't live without when i'm having an english breakfast beans on toast at that beans on toast yeah i had a really good um curried beans on toast when i was in scotland and it was the simplest dish at this little cafe and i'll never forget it because it was just so perfect um as far as israeli breakfast goes well so in a in Israel, you can typically choose between little like breakfast sets. So you can have shakshuka, which I guess eggs are kind of the star. But to me, also the sauce is the star. Like you need to make sure you have a really good tomato base with peppers and um, onions and like all these different spices. And then the eggs kind of beautifully sit in that sauce and poach. Uh, again, creating extra delicious liquid to soak up bread and, and things like that. And then you get all these different sides. So labna is like a strained yogurt cheese and always olives. Sometimes you see smoked salmon, which I thought was really interesting in Israel. But every breakfast I've had there has it. Yeah. And this wonderful like Middle Eastern chopped salad too. Yes. Yes. And... What's amazing in Israel is that there's so many incredible hotel breakfasts there that a lot of the locals on the weekends will go to the hotels and have breakfast or brunch um, because the spreads are just so insane and you can have an option of everything. And it's a lot of Middle Eastern dishes, international dishes, but I mean, they just they kill it with breakfast. So does the term continental breakfast do a disservice of what hotel breakfast can be completely it'll it'll change your life (laughs) well what are some of the best hotel breakfasts you've ever had i I know personally in japan i was blown away by uh, a place called klaska in meguro in tokyo and the japanese breakfast you know a piece of cured fish and a bowl of rice a bowl of soup just was one of the more mind-blowing things i've ever had yeah well I was going to say, if you, I just went to Okonomi. If you want a really amazing Japanese breakfast in New York, Okonomi is the place to do that. Um, let's see. In Stockholm. Oh, okay. I'm going to butcher the name of this. Um, Hotel Hepsolnen. It's part, I think it's part of the Nobis Hotel Group. Really anything part of the Nobis Hotel Group, but particularly Hepsolnen. They have this incredible backyard area that backs up to a tennis court and it's essentially on its own private archipelago island and you wake up in the morning it's this small boutique hotel and they get all the eggs from local farms and just tons of different types of smoked fish and swedish breakfast dishes so you have the um little caviar that you put on toast and just tons of different stuff. It it was incredible and everything just tasted so fresh. I mean, I've always warded away from those breakfasts because everything's just out and doesn't look its most spectacular until you hit a place like that. Right. And I really rate all of those on the quality of their yogurt. 
I really do. You know, some people have, you know, the individual things or a big bowl, but it really, if it's good yogurt, I feel like everything else is good. That is an amazing indicator, actually. I think it's a worthy meter. And let's talk about something close to that area of the world in Iceland and how important something like skier is to that culture and to breakfast in general, a strained yogurt. Uh, yeah, I think it's... Yogurt in the Nordic regions is so important because it's fermented. It keeps for a really long time. And there's all these different accompaniments that go with it, seasonal berries and fruits that can be turned into preserves and um, kind of these like rye bread crouton like breadcrumbs that is essentially like a cereal but also a topping for yogurt and a popular dish kind of like kefir in the middle east or i mean now popular here they have a fermented milk kind of drink that you can eat with these rye breadcrumbs and it's it's like a thick cereal type thing i guess but it's so delicious I mean, I guess from yogurt, you have to talk about all those toppings like you just did because uh, the yogurt bowls or granola bowls are such a big thing in New York, in all-day cafes, maybe even around the world. What do you like to top your yogurt with? It varies a lot. I always have um, bee pollen in my fridge, which I really like, local honey, whatever fruit I have available, almonds. I have a weird obsession with like having a million types of assorted nuts in my cabinet all the time I like get really nervous if I'm running out of almonds or walnuts or something like that because I, I kind of need them as like a quick snack or to top on yogurt it's a really quick on the go food so are you are you someone who plans ahead thinks the night before say for oats or even even more specific um in Switzerland they have muesli right I do things pretty on the fly. I, I don't know if I'm if I plan ahead enough to make muesli. It is delicious, but I don't know if I would have the foresight for that. I also I mean, I love thinking about breakfast before I go to sleep. I kind of talk about every meal, even if I'm eating a meal, like whatever the next one is. Um, but breakfast, it's kind of whatever I'm in the mood for. A lot of times it's trying to like clear out stuff that's in the fridge or repurposing something for dinner the night before, which is really popular in, in Asian cultures as well. Like most Asian cultures is savory breakfast. And especially in Korea, it's some kind of stew or a protein dish left over from the night before mixed with like as a fried rice or into another version of stew with all the banchan and small plates. So although I don't eat like that every morning, I definitely make a lot of breakfast salads and um, we'll take things from the fridge. I feel like a frittata is that vehicle, clean out the fridge. But uh, what about congee? I mean, congee is something you certainly see on dinner menus here in Chinatown, but I, I, I saw it in your book as a breakfast item. It is definitely a breakfast item. And I do make congee at home for breakfast, especially on the weekends in the winter. It's it's so comforting and filling. And again, tra- there's ugh, a million like traditional Chinese ingredients. And then all throughout Asia, everyone has some kind of version of congee. Like in Thailand, it's juke and you'll see... It's essentially the same. Every family, every country has different cooking time preferences, like the amount of water you put in, how long you cook it. It has to do with how much the rice breaks down. And then all the toppings are regional. So if I make congee here, um, I can add 
again, anything that I have in the fridge that I feel like would be good. It's funny you mentioned congee and juke and that there are so many porridges because I, I don't think any of the breakfast items in your book have this umbrella term. Like, say, pancakes. In pancakes, I saw uh, blueberry pancakes, Dutch babies, blinis, dosas, and sky and pancakes. All breakfast. Right. So when people now say pancakes to you, do you ask them to specify? <laughs> um no, I mean, it It depends where we are, I guess. But typically, I know it is honestly categorizing the book was one of the hardest parts of it. So even just organizing how many types of kanji we had in the book and where that went um, took <laughs> way longer than you would think. I mean, how did you do toast? Toast has become... The, the the superstar of breakfast, the avocado toast specifically. And we, we can go into the origins uh, of that right. if you'd like. Very contentious. Um, yeah, but, but talk to me about how toast has become such a, a morning thing. Um, toast has always been a morning thing. I mean, a perfectly cooked piece of toast is is kind of the most humble breakfast you can have around the world. And I mean, really even more simple than that is just bread, like a slice of bread. I feel like in... In Poland, in a lot of parts of Eastern Europe, it's just a slice of bread, untoasted, with um, a slice of cheese or a deli meat, and it's it's really simple. And then things just get more extravagant as you go along. Um, I mean, the, the toast trend as it is in New York evidently started in San Francisco, but avocado toast all like it's contentious yeah. but like kind of started in Australia but also California and and now it's all over the world which is insane how much that took off but to me avocado toast is something I eat growing up so it's weird to me that it's a super trendy food it's not weird to me that like Vegemite and Marmite didn't didn't accelerate in the same way as avocado even though I love Vegemite right yeah I I, I met someone who was in Australia when I was a young kid and had a took a liking to that that you know, very yeasty yeah. flavor profile. Well, I think nutritional yeast is becoming really popular now. So that kind of salty, yeasty taste, it's, it's just a flavor enhancer. And what a lot of American people think is that you spread it on kind of like peanut butter. And that is completely wrong. Typically, you would have a piece of toast, you would butter it, you would put a really thin layer of Vegemite, and then you can even add avocado and do a Vegemite avocado toast. I feel like toast is just an unassembled sandwich. It really is, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, the, the the greatest satisfaction I've ever had in New York going out for breakfast is having a bacon, egg, and cheese. And I mean like a bodega one on a Kaiser roll. Um, what is it about having a sandwich in the morning? Maybe even specifically the BEC. I love breakfast sandwiches. It's my favorite section in the book. I would have made it so much longer if I could, but it would have just been disproportionate. <laughs> um, there are so many amazing sandwiches around the world, but it's it's kind of hard to compete with, with a bacon, egg, and cheese from a bodega in New York City. It's the most humble breakfast food. It's affordable to everyone economically, but everyone of every class eats it like no one is above a bacon egg and cheese and that's what I think is so cool because you have bagels from all sorts of places and that's humble too but they get really pricey really fast especially when you add lox and cream cheese and everything but a really fancy bacon egg and cheese sandwich is delicious but so is one from a bodega with salt pepper ketchup 
I, I also feel like pastries are very democratizing too because of the price point. Right. Um, and you usually only see them in the morning and, you know, a lot of bakeries close before dinner time. So let's look at maybe the, the uh, Swedish cardamom bun. Um, what things like that, those sweet and maybe into savory things, do you like picking up around the world and having as your first nosh? Um, I love I love Swedish cardamom buns. I had a really good experience with them, too. I was in Sweden, like, traveling alone, and I went to... Um, this kind of garden area on one of the islands in Stockholm and they have a restaurant there. It's kind of like, I think it's like the central park. I'm not really sure. Or like the botanical gardens. Um, they have an incredible restaurant there and I was writing about food, um, on the trip. So started talking to some of the bakers. They brought me into the bakery and I made cardamom buns with them for half the day and didn't expect to at all. So those are particularly special to me. And when you're walking around Stockholm, they're everywhere. Kind of like, I mean, uh, along with all of the other classic pastries, but I really love seeing the super regional pastries and um, sweet kind of morning buns and dishes that each country has. And Europe is is like the pastry capital for breakfast. So if you like pastries and bread, that's the place to be. Uh, I, I was kind of blown away. Being in Chicago, I went to Fat Rice for dinner and had a wonderful dinner and they make, you know, macanese food or they make food of the port cities that all the Portuguese stopped in around the world. Mm -hmm. But then they opened a bakery a couple years ago and I stopped by the next morning, not thinking I was going to be as blown away as I was by dinner. But I had this riff on a Portuguese egg tart as well as a riff on a Chinese pineapple bun, both with are just mind blowing. But I'm like, are these really breakfast foods? A hundred percent. Yeah. Um, I mean, in Portugal and in Macau, egg tarts are the croissant. Like it's the on the go breakfast food that, well, not on the go. I mean, you would stand at a cafe and eat it fairly quickly with an espresso, but it's like a few bite food that is so common in, in both of those places. And actually one of the hardest recipes that I had to remake for the book. And I was doing a breakfast club with Abe and Adrian at Fat Rice and told them how hard it was to make the egg tarts. And they said it took them years to perfect their recipe. And I think that they have one of the best ones I've had all over the world. So if you're in Chicago, 100% go and try them. Because you can't really hide anything uh, with something so simple. So, I mean, what were the hardest recipes to replicate either because of their simplicity or complexity? Um, well, the egg tart was difficult because I needed to get the puff pastry cooked through all the way. And I mean, I'm not inherently amazing at baking, which is why I think if you make anything from this book, you'll be able to make it because I can make it. Um, and let's see what else. In Sri Lanka, um, I mean, this is not a typical breakfast, but in Sri Lanka and in the UK, it is um, egg hoppers, which is like this fermented pancake batter. And it's the pancake is cooked in this wok shaped dome type contraption, but it's very specific to hoppers. And to have an egg hopper, you just plop an egg in the bottom and it it fries up and it's so delicious and you just peel off the top pieces of the pancake and dip it in the egg and it's so great recreating that at home was ridiculous but I did it it took about six times and also we I had um 
some help like outside recipe development because there was, you know, five or six recipes. I was like, I need help with this. And that was one of them. There were 380 recipes. Yeah, yeah. That that was a lot of lifting. (laughs) There was. A lot of breakfast you had to have. And it came at the very end. Um, I'm not, I can't, I don't know how to pronounce this, but um, this dish in Singapore, it's a quay, like a a little rice, steamed rice cake or rice dumpling. And it's topped in fried onion and, um, or no, preserved radish. And it's so delicious. And you get it at Hawker Centers in the morning. And it's essentially just this like light steamed rice cake. Um, It's very hard to steam rice cakes at home. So getting the consistency right, it it just it took a lot of time. So that, that might be something you go out and either eat alone or see a friend over. Right, but there's not a lot of Singaporean restaurants here, and I haven't really seen them. So that's why this book was so important to me to have these recipes right and represented properly. And for every country in the book, there's at least one person, friend, their family, cousins, relatives, whatever, who took a look at the recipes, took a look at the information to make sure it was all like culturally correct well having spent time in hawaii have you ever had hawaiian noodle soup simon hawaiian yeah 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 yeah. i used to get simon at mcdonald's really yeah why why would you opt for that over say hash browns what was the attraction towards having that for breakfast i don't know especially as a little kid i have no idea i think i really liked the uh the fish cakes which also for little kid is kind of interesting but um it's essentially like a fish paste log that is sliced and sometimes colored and shaped into like flowers and things like that. And it always had this pink swirl in it. And I thought those were really cool. So I think that attracted me to the soup in the first place. I mean, we see that same Naruto in ramen, right. just flipping it on its head and saying, well, maybe dinner is for breakfast. Right. What's cool about Simon and Hawaiian food in general is that it's it's this beautiful kind of clash of cultures like each dish is weirdly competing for a certain culture but somehow it all ends up working out really well there's filipino influence chinese influence japanese influence and then just island hawaiian influence so in a dish like saimen you get all of these incredible cultures in one you know what i don't see enough of for breakfast is fish um and I am a huge fan of, of seafood in general and worked uh, as a cook in, in you know seafood for years. So I ate a lot of fish uh, early in the morning, maybe because I was working at that time. But I grew up loving uh, Caribbean food and, you know, having ackee and, and salt fish um, or having fish as an accent point. It wasn't until I moved back to New York and met a lot of Filipino friends um, that I realized how great it is to have fish at breakfast. What, what are certain ingredients that people don't normally see for breakfast in this country? And do you hope that they explore? I mean, fish is is a great one. I think some, and honestly, it's it's the basic stuff too. Like go to the pancake section and, and try a different type of pancake. Like maybe one of the fermented ones, like the Moroccan pancakes, the top is covered in all of these little holes and you can see the fermentation that also took a really long time to figure out but um they're so delicious and they're warm and you drizzle them with honey and you can take all of these traditional foods wherever you are in the world that you find comforting and then go to that section and try something from another country and i guarantee you it'll feel just as nostalgic which is what was so interesting 
when it came to breakfast, a lot of regions where there's a lot of contention, everything seemed borderless. In a place, in a city, in a metropolis that also seems borderless at times, what, what are your favorite international breakfast cuisines in New York City? Let's see. Uh, well, I like Frankel's a lot when I was living in Greenpoint, so that kind of satisfies the new school Jewish appetizing. Um, one of my favorites is Wu's Wonton King, which is really popular within the wine and food community in New York, but not a lot of those people even know that it's open at 7 a.m. It's open from 7 a.m. to 10 a.m. And the wonton soup that they're famous for is traditionally a breakfast food in Shanghai. So it's like a street food in Shanghai, and they do it incredibly well. And also in that area is uh, Kopitiam, which is a Malaysian coffee shop, which I love because it's one of the only places in the city where you can get kaya toast, which is a pandan coconut jam that you have on grilled bread with a lot of butter and um, runny eggs on the side and a pulled tea. And, and it's just really nostalgic of Southeast Asia. Um, Castillo de Jagua is a Dominican spot in the Lower East Side as well. And they do an incredible Dominican breakfast plate. It has mango, which is smashed plantains, uh, fried salami, fried eggs, fried cheese. And it's definitely hearty, but it's so delicious, especially if you're hungover. And um, you can get it with a Maria Sognando, which is this um, kind of like a, I think a better version of an orange Julius. It's um, milk and orange juice with chipped ice, like super vigorously stirred. So it's frothy and light and, and so delicious. You know, after reading this book, uh, I'm glad you gave me that list of places to go because I want to explore all these cuisines uh, outside of my home and recreate. There was one that stuck out because I think ketchup is such a funny thing to see during breakfast. And I squirted it all over my bacon, egg and cheese if I don't have the right hot sauce around. Uh, but there was a Haitian spaghetti that had hot dogs and so much ketchup in it. Um, it fascinated me, and I want to find it here in New York. Michael, it's so good. <laughs> <laughs> like, I remember going to the store and buying hot dogs and extra ketchup and all this stuff, and I was like, what am I making? But then in Haiti, there's a huge French influence, so they use Comte cheese on this, like, ketchup spaghetti dish and... I don't know. It's It just like feels really good to eat it. <laughs> well, it felt great to see that you love breakfast as much as I do and that there's a book for me to reference whenever I you know, have that power bar I'm about to open and say, wait a sec, there's more to the morning than this. Yeah, put down the bar. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Hashtag put down the bar. <laughs> Emily, thank you so much for not only writing this, but coming to the studio and me. hope to have breakfast with you again soon. Yeah, definitely. You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You've been listening. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, hoping to have you back here next Tuesday at three. A big thank you to Patina Events for sponsoring Music by Cookies and Matt Patterson Engineering. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. 
Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.